All right, Steve, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. So for folks listening in, why don't we get them started with a quick 60 to 90 seconds on what Watershed does, and then we'd love to hear some more about yourself and how you kind of came to working on the stuff that you are. Yeah, fantastic. So Watershed is uh, an enterprise company that actually uh, measures other companies' carbon footprints, helps them plan reductions, and then implement those reductions by selling clean power and some carbon credits. Got it. Yeah. And I think, you know, when folks think about climate technologies or the energy transition, a lot of times, like the first thing we think about is, you know, the supply side of renewable energy, where does the energy actually come from? But interestingly, whenever folks sign up for my Keep Cool newsletter, I ask them, you know, like, in the welcome email, what's one climate tech company that you're particularly excited about? And I think Watershed is actually one of the most common answers. Um, Why do you think there's been so much more attention on the work that you do perhaps the last five years or so in the kind of carbon accounting space as a whole? Well, I think in general, people are understanding that, you know, we have a pretty good idea of what some of the big solutions are at this point. So, Mm. you know, the, the world in which we didn't know how to solve the climate problem has kind of evaporated as things like solar and wind and electric vehicles have gotten cheap. And the, the new sort of barrier is to actually implement those solutions, get them mm-hmm. out in the world. And there's a lot of friction uh, to get rid of the old stuff and bring in the new. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think a company like Watershed can do a lot of good by breaking down those barriers, you know, reducing the friction uh, and linking the demand to those technologies. Mm-hmm. Before we dive deep into the, the hows and the whys and, and how all that works, uh, would love to get folks up to speed on you know, your work and what you've done in the past and, and how you got to Watershed. Sure. So, you know, I come to Watershed having been a professor of earth system science at the University of California in Irvine for 10 years. Uh, and really, that is not even the beginning of the time that I spent <laughs> as a researcher in, in this space. You know, most of my research is, is pretty high level, global or national level, mm. carbon accounting, emissions accounting. And thinking about how we actually transition to a, a more sustainable energy system and food system as well. Um, but, you know, like I just mentioned, that's very high level. It's, mm-hmm. it's looking at what needs to happen in these global scales. And really, we need to get down to the rubber meeting the road at the level of the people making decisions, uh, mm-hmm. which is Watershed is working with. And is that part of what motivated your kind of transition from academia to an enterprise is to kind of move from looking at, you know, global scale of emissions data to trying to like help companies make a really concrete impact. Yeah, that that's right. Uh, I mean, it was really, I would say two pieces to that. One is just that writing papers as an academic is policy relevant as you make those papers. You're never quite sure if anyone's actually reading those papers or <laughs> much less making a decision based on I try on my it. best to read them once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, but so I, I, I really wanted to kind of get in the room with the people that were making decisions and, and mm-hmm. have a more direct influence on that. Um, the second thing is really, like I said, that, you know, I think we're at a turning point where the, the research can certainly still add a lot of value and knowledge uh, about how to go about the, the transition to a sustainable um, energy system, for example, mm-hmm. 
But really, we're in this world where the barriers need to be removed and we need to get to work deploying what we already know how to do. Mm -hmm. And so being an academic, you have less, uh, you know, ability to put your shoulder to that wheel than you can in the private side. And so that's where coming to Watershed gives me access to like really having a bigger impact, I would say, in the near term. Excellent. And what were, you know, when you were first joining Watershed, I'm sure a lot has changed, but what were some of the first things that the team asked you to help do when you first came on board? Yeah, so the the climate science team that I lead really has a few different hats that we wear within the organization. Um, One is to uh, make sure that the methodologies that we have for estimating a company's emissions are as great as they can possibly be. Mm -hmm. Um, They're able to resolve you know, details of the emissions, but also resolve the things that companies could do to reduce those emissions. And so, you know, helping to constantly improve those methods is something that I was immediately involved in. Mm. Um, another piece to that is to start to evaluate quantitatively what these different companies can do to reduce emissions. You know, mm. how in, if clean power is an option, how much uh, reduction might a company see from purchasing clean power, and you know what are the the sort of uh, pain points there? Are is the clean power actually getting used by the company itself, or is it an upstream uh, what we would call scope three in the corporate accounting space? Um, in which case, it may be a little more difficulty to get a supplier to buy into clean power. Mm-hmm. So we do some of the work to actually analyze the the costs and the potential for reductions. And then the final piece is the marketplace side, which I think we'll get to a little bit in today's conversation, uh, which marketplace is what we call at Watershed, the group that actually brokers clean power sales for our customers, mm-hmm. has some different products for nature-based carbon removal, for permanent um, technological carbon removal, and goes out in contracts for all of that for our customers. And so my team is helping to vet these things and make sure that what's in that marketplace is the best possible quality and actually will have a real impact on the climate. Got it. Yeah. That's helpful to kind of lay out also the end to end of, you know, everything from helping a company understand its emissions footprint to quantifying it and then providing solutions and even directing them to opportunities to uh, improve their environmental footprint or, or make changes. And I think, you know, maybe we can dig in on each piece uh, mm-hmm. kind of from start to finish. Like you mentioned all the different method- methodological work that goes into helping companies understand the totality of their emissions footprint. What are some of the what are some examples that you'd share of, you know, some nitty gritty stuff that uh, of work that you have to do to help co- help companies really have a comprehensive picture of, of their sure. emissions footprint? Yeah, I mean, as you could probably just intuit. Uh, the holy grail here is to have real data about all of the things that a company is doing that lead to emissions. And so, for example, you know, a company that has a vehicle fleet, we'd love to know exactly how much gasoline or diesel is being burned by those vehicles. Mm-hmm. And we can often get that. Um, but there are pieces that I already intimated are, are further uh, beyond the, the uh, company's <laughs> actual control, you know, right. when they purchase something like, you know, purchase paper for the printers in the office. Um, it's often really hard to know exactly the methods that were used to produce that paper, where the feedstocks came from, how much energy, you know, was it in a very efficient paper production process or not? Mm-hmm. And so 
in those cases where you often lack detailed data, you have to take other uh, approaches to estimating the associated emissions. And very frequently, what what folks do is called spend-based accounting. Mm. So you know sort of an average emissions per dollar of paper out in the world. Right. You ask your customer, how much did they spend on paper? And you make an estimate based on that. So that's, that's sort of the mix. And, and really the goal of Watershed is to figure out where there are hot spots, even if they're beyond a company's direct control. There's a lot of emissions happening with some sort of good that a customer of ours is procuring. We want to do better than a spend-based estimate and mm-hmm. actually get into some real data. Um, and so, you know, I think you maybe saw we recently introduced this supplier engagement tool. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this is all about is to work upstream because many of our customers have a lot of these scope three emissions. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to get better resolution on that mm-hmm. scope three work upstream, especially to ask their suppliers for a few key pieces of information that will allow us to do better than just a spend-based estimate. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just working with existing data sources and kind of mining the publicly available data, but also now trying to encourage companies to be more proactively engaged with their entire supply chain and sourcing data. I think that's a good exactly. Yeah. And it really has to be both. I mean, you have to be clever about using <laughs> every piece of information you can gather, whether it's publicly available or in a proprietary data set or coming ideally directly from the person that's you know, doing the activity. Mm-hmm. And I imagine the companies, I mean, given that they're given companies that for your customers, given they're already working with you, I can see their willingness and perhaps interest in, you know, getting more of this data. But how do you think suppliers are reacting to that request for more transparency? I'm sure it's on a lot of their radar already, given regulation the last five, 10 years, but is there a decent amount of point of, is there a point of tension there or has it been a pretty easy ask in most of your customers' cases, do you think? I mean, I think it varies. Uh, you know, I've been in this game, you know, I had a nonprofit <laughs> maybe 15 years ago that did some carbon footprinting and that was my first you know, dalliance in carbon accounting. And I think when you'd ask a supplier for any data then, they first of all, they had no idea why you were even asking. And so I think we've mm. come a long way and now getting to the point where a lot of companies have done some carbon accounting, they have some idea and they're tracking this more carefully. So they have numbers to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what's interesting at Watershed is we actually have customers who are being asked by their customers for information. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing a little bit more of this now that, that this kind of supply chain engagement is a thing. And we're finding that it's, you know, it's it's one of these things you have to uh, make the ask tractable. And that's what this tool that we've built is helping to do to make sure that you're asking the right questions and not, you know, overly onerous ones mm. where a supplier is going to have to hire a consultant just to <laughs> fill out your survey like that. That's not scalable. It won't work. So we've worked really hard to figure out what that right balance is. And I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah. There was something I had an interesting thought while we were talking about kind of customers querying other customers. It's like, yeah, given the amount of different folks that you serve, it starts to get a little bit enmeshed where, you know, they're all sourcing things from one another. So is that an area where kind of the second stage of what you described in Watershed's business kind of activates, which is 
quantifying data insights for customers and also potentially like seeing data across the whole ecosystem of companies that are even working together? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much on our mind that there are these positive network effects as we grow the number of customers that we have. But we also have to be very sensitive about the fact that some of this data is proprietary mm-hmm. and private and, and make sure that you know we wall off one customer's information from another's unless there's been a conversation and a, you know, an expressed willingness to share that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that but makes we sense. We can learn a lot, I think, is to your point. We we see it all and we can kind of understand you know, where the hot spots are in a certain industry that another customer might be working with um, because we've actually done the carbon accounting in both cases. Yeah, at the risk of jumping the gun, are there insights, perhaps pretty top level ones that you know you've distilled from working with a bunch of these different customers across industries? Like, What are some of the things that have jumped out at you the past couple of years and seeing customers grapple with this challenge? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think there's anything that would uh, completely surprise anyone who's looked at uh, where emissions are coming from at mm-hmm. all. Um, you know, the, the bulk of emissions for our customers that are in the tech space is related to electricity and mm-hmm. travel uh, to a lesser extent, buildings that have heating systems. And right. so those are the big ones society-wide and you know, at, at least to this point, we haven't necessarily gone uh, very deep into heavier industries, you know, steel making and cement making and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there haven't been too many big surprises, which I think is what you want, right? You'd like mm-hmm. to be able to uh, have the answers ready for your customers. Right. That was going to be a question of mine at one point. Is like, was there a, a client who went through an analysis and was just like, whoa, we had no idea that... <laughs> I mean, it, it does happen. I, like I mentioned, the nonprofit that I had started years ago, um, I remember it was a New Belgium Brewing Company that we were working for. Mm. And they were very surprised to learn that a lot of their carbon footprint was in the refrigeration of their product downstream. Mm. And so, you know, surprises do sort of crop up in some of these. So it's not always, you know, like you do need to do the measurement, do the analysis. Um but, you know, the, the ultimate sources for the customers that we have, I think, aren't that shocking. Yeah, that ties into a broader, I've been thinking a decent amount about, you know, there's so much exciting innovation in climate technology right now. But in many ways, at the same time, there's still so much opportunity on things that we've known about for a long time, whether it's building energy efficiency or other kind of demand side parts of the equation. You know, the supply side super important where the energy and the electricity comes from. But sometimes I think if we spent equal amount of time encouraging people to weather eyes and insulate their buildings and make a lot, a lot more progress in a short time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's the sort of thing that I'm excited to do at Watershed is to lay out that roadmap for our mm-hmm. customers. What, what can you do that's going to take a big bite out of your carbon footprint and is probably pretty affordable in the case of energy efficiency stuff, like you mentioned. Right on. That's a great lead in. Let's talk a little bit about how, you know, y'all's platform is not just quantifying and making things more traceable and visible for folks, but some of the steps that you're taking to make it easier for people to take action, business owners to take action. Yeah. I mean, we've built out a a pretty cool set of tools within the software that allows our customers to go in and look at the emissions reductions that could result from different interventions that they might make Mm. and set sort of long-term targets for you know, reducing those emissions over the next 10, 20 years. 
Um, so you can kind of look at how, you know, changing employee commuting might actually mm. affect your carbon footprint or right. reducing the amount of business travel that your company is doing. Um, what's the bottom line effect of that? You know, a lot of times the biggest one is to shift away from just the electricity grid mix and mm-hmm. get yourself onto a dedicated source of clean power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes from the fact, like I've mentioned a couple of times, that we have a lot of tech customers and that's that's the lion's share of their emissions. Right. Yeah. Cooling data centers, stuff like that, or buildings. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And is that also, is will a component of the marketplace we were describing earlier also be to you know, help companies like that source power purchase agreements for their electricity if that's a route that they want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. So we often hand the customers over to the marketplace team to help source that clean power uh, where it's identified that that's a big lever for them. Mm -hmm. And the marketplace sells a whole range of different power products. The one I'm most excited about these days are uh, VPPAs, purchase power agreements. Mm -hmm where we're working with vendors to actually get new facilities of solar or wind built and onto the grid. And we think that's the ideal because obviously it has the most uh, additional Mm -hmm. uh, contribution to that part of our economy's emissions. Got it. Yeah. And it seems like there's, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of different solutions supported in the marketplace. I think I've seen that, you know, in some cases there's also kind of carbon removal transactions being brokered through there. Talk to me a little bit about, kind of what the full gamut of solutions look like and what well, we've already, you know, mentioned one, renewable energy. And what's kind of the difference in which one solution would be recommended for another? I'm particularly interested in, you know, a case where carbon removal transaction might be something that you think is really impactful for a company. Yeah, I mean, so a lot to unpack in that question. I think uh, one thing to note is that the co-founders of Watershed all came from Stripe and mm. Stripe, as you probably know, has been really proactive about um, supporting the development of, 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 they call it frontier carbon removal technologies. Right. So the, the technological solutions that would result in permanent carbon removal from the atmosphere um, is really what that uh, frontier group is all about. And we mm-hmm. have some close ties to that group. And so we've uh, actually been selling a fair number of, of these permanent carbon removal technologies via our marketplace, which I think is pretty different than you know some of the stuff that you hear about in the news more often. Sure. Um, yeah. That said, we also include a, a, a range of nature-based carbon removals as well. So, you know, reforestation projects are part of that. Some regenerative agriculture. Mm. Um, we're very careful about uh, what we're doing there to vet those things. Um, you know, really digging in. We don't really take any of the accrediting agencies or bodies' word for anything. We, we do a lot of due diligence on our own, and we end up right. rejecting 99% of the kind of nature-based stuff that, that we find out in the marketplace. Oh, interesting. Um, but, you know, we have a, customers that are at a range of their climate journey. So ones that are highly sophisticated and ready to like spend big bucks on the the nascent permanent removal technologies and Mm -hmm. others that are just beginning, but want to do something to, uh, you know, say that they're helping to remove carbon right out of the gate before they uh, have to wait 20 years until they can afford the the high end stuff. And so that's why we have kind of this range of products available. 
And I think it's also kind of really important to think, depending on the customer, they maybe have other environmental and sustainability priorities, even beyond climate. Mm. And so it can be really helpful to have some of these carbon removal technologies that are nature-based, for example, Mm. and actually contribute in some way to local economies in lower-income countries or biodiversity, other things that the companies may care about that maybe they can get kind of both of those at the same time. Right. Yeah. Those co-benefits can can definitely be attractive. Um, And that leads me to, I guess I'm curious whether, you know, if that's on the marketplace side of selling some solutions that have other attractive co-benefits, obviously beyond reducing emissions, same of which can be true about renewable power, you know, reducing pollution. Are there, will that feed back into kind of like the measurement and data side of the watershed platform eventually? Like, do you want to start help helping customers think about more than just, you know, here's your greenhouse gas emissions footprint, but here's maybe a more holistic interpretation of your impact on the environment? Yeah, it's it's something that comes up fairly regularly in the halls of watershed that, you know, we'd like to add some of these other considerations to the product. Um, but we are a startup and, you know, our top line mission is to avoid greenhouse gas emissions. I think at least in the near term, we're pretty laser focused on the climate <laughs> part of it. And you know, we're certainly not ignorant that there are these other co-benefits and, and we love to support those things as well. But no plans to expand scope um, immediately. Yeah, that makes sense. Y'all are already doing a lot. I think sometimes a tiny bit, a touch of narrow focus can also be helpful. Um, and, be. and there is, you know, there is definitely tension out there where I see people falling into question, you know, like, why only talk about decarbonization? Like, there's a lot more challenges. But I do also think that so much of what can help reduce emissions does automatically produce other co-benefits, as we've been saying, whether, you know, improving the quality of the air or all kinds of other stuff that happens as a product of changing power sources and stuff like that, that it's not, you know, even when you're only focusing on carbon emissions, you end up doing more than more than just that. Yeah, this is something that's actually been on my radar as a researcher uh, Mm. before Watershed and just had a paper last month um, that showed in California, for example, not only do you get huge improvements in air quality as you decarbonize the economy, but the equitable distribution of those improvements um, Mm. so that, you know, traditionally disadvantaged communities in California have had much worse air quality. And so you can kind of compensate for that as well. So you're right, just to point out, there's lots of things that happen that are good just beyond the, the climate improvement. Mm, yeah. Um, and another question I wanted to ask is you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, portfolio of clients right now is comprised predominantly of, kind of high tech companies. Do you think that will be something that changes over the next year or two where you start to onboard different companies from across a lot of different industries? And, and what, what kind of prep work do you need to do to be able to service those, those fields as well? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And, you know, it's not by accident that we started in the tech space. Uh, There were two pieces to that. One was that was where a lot of the network of the Mm co-founders existed. But it's also, you know, a a thing that we did very strategically to build out sector by sector to make sure we could serve the customers that we were bringing on board uh, the product that they wanted. Mm -hmm. So we are already expanding. We've moved considerably into the finance sphere 
um, which is you know a, a distinct domain from the the tech logos that we have on board. Right, very much so. And now we're actually moving pretty quickly into the physical products uh, mm. parts of the economy, including apparel first and foremost. Mm. So we've got some new customers in that space. And I'm not sure Amelia can tell me if I'm allowed to talk about that or not, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but very excited to, to grow that and, and to continue the expansion into more and more sectors, um, largely because you know, that's where a lot of the emissions are actually occurring mm. is where manufacturing is happening, where, you know, things are getting built that have uh, en energy intensive materials uh, related processes. And so we want to get that carbon under management so that we can help pull the lever and, and reduce those emissions. Right. Yeah, that was going to be another question I asked is whether that's mostly demand led from a business perspective or as in like these are the folks that are knocking on your door saying, hey, we need help with this or also kind of with a perspective on industries that would just benefit from <laughs> understanding yeah. their emissions better than they currently do. Now, I, I was kind of shocked when I first joined the company that we were actively turning away and, and still do a number of potential customers because they were outside the industries that we wanted to focus on. So mm -hmm. it is kind of a very strategic thing for us to grow in a, an organized way and tackle these one by one to make sure we're, you know, delighting the customers that we get mm -hmm. in the door and not disappointing. Yeah. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess in some, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, some of the industries that you mentioned earlier that are extremely emissions intensive, be it steel production, concrete production, what have you, I think, you know, ironically, they probably also understand maybe not like the magnitude perfectly, but they certainly understand where the emissions are coming from in their process because of how emissions intensive it is, perhaps more so than textile manufacturing. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, we, we already covered the fact that for a tech company, a lot of the emissions are not in the, the four walls of the, the office building. They're happening far away at a data center, electricity generation and so forth. So that's different when you're talking mm -hmm. about a company that's you know doing some heavy uh, process like a cement kiln they know exactly what's going on to create those emissions mm. um, whether they have options for reducing them is is a sort of a uh, related question i think right. it's you know a little more difficult when you start talking about some of those heavier industries um, this is something I've done work on as an academic of, you know, how, how, how do we tackle the last bit of emissions? We know what the easy steps are, the relatively easy steps of clean power, electrifying end uses of, for heating and transportation. <laughs> but when you get to agriculture or you get to, you know, flying or cement and steel, um, these become much more difficult and you have to get more creative with your solutions. Yeah. I'm excited for the future in which all that stuff is also hosted in y'all's marketplace, but yeah, it'll take yeah, some we're more, working on it. <laughs> take some more work from a lot of people across the world to uh, figure out the solutions for something like green steel, but it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually it may be coming before we all realize, like I think there's an impressive number of companies that are not daunted by the difficulty of some of these challenges and are forging ahead with, sustainable aviation fuels, right. and, you know, hydrogen reduced uh, steel making and, and so forth. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on what y'all are featuring in your marketplace to stay at the cutting edge of what's out there. Yeah, keep your eye on that space. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I guess zooming out a little bit, I think, you know, it's been a quite a buzzy year for carbon accounting industry broadly. Um, lots of companies have, you know, raised funds to build their own marketplaces or their own software solutions. And I think last week, even I saw that one, I might be getting the name, the name wrong now, but it's called Planetly or something actually folded and went out of business. So it seems like I wouldn't say the space is crowded, but there's certainly a lot of competitors. Um, what do you think, you know, the main differentiation between a number of these companies is? Is it a focus on different industries or trying to solve one kind of component of the end to end stack more comprehensively than the other? Yeah, I think you're right. There's a number of them out there. Um, there are some differences in which industries they're tackling, I think, but it's also, you know, the ones I've encountered. Sometimes they're doing a piece of what Watershed does, but not right. the whole thing. They're either really focused on the measurement, but then you know, they'll, they'll point you to a consultant to help with the reductions or mm-hmm. they're selling carbon credits, but they don't want to talk about measurement. And mm-hmm. so I think the end to end, as you uh, called it, is one of the attractions about Watershed. It's also the case that, you know, there's quite a bit of momentum with our company, at least, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've now got a couple hundred customers and we've, we've achieved a scale that I think will be very valuable to future customers. And, and that kind of momentum is, right. you know, hard to get, but once it's there, I think <laughs> it's hard to, to compete with. So. Yeah. Well, it's hard to compete with, but at the same time, people do like to try and draft off of it sometimes. So sure. yeah, <laughs> I enough. guess you can't blame folks for recognizing the success and wanting to to try and replicate some of it. Do you think that, to that end, do you think there's, I guess it's a pretty difficult question to answer, but do you think there's need for and room for, you know, three to five companies in the same way that there's ultimately, you know, think of other software areas, there's usually, there can be three to five big players. Do you think there's room for that many companies to perhaps service different industries or to really hone in on pieces of the, the process? Or do you think... Yeah, I mean, how do you hear that? <laughs> so you're you're uh, you're asking me questions that are a little beyond my expertise. Like I'm no MBA, but it does feel like we you know aren't going to be able to service every customer in the entire economy. Probably there's plenty of room for uh, multiple companies to to be at different right. levels or helping with different industries where they've maybe specialized a bit more. I mean, in order to achieve the kinds of global reductions in emissions that we want. Um, we're really going to have to be servicing a lot of different companies across a lot of different regions um, and, you know, holding their hand as they go about reducing their emissions. Um, so I, I don't, I don't feel particularly <laughs> worried if there's a few companies doing this. I think that leaves plenty yeah. of the high for, for watershed. Right on. And looking ahead, what are some of the biggest things that, you know, you're working on or constraints that you see or challenges that you see in near, near term or even like products and features that you would want to add to the, the platform for folks? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's nothing that, uh, that I'm too concerned about. We have sort of a roadmap, right, of continuing to improve our methodologies to build out some of the supplier engagement mechanisms mm-hmm. that we were talking about. Um, and And I think adding more products to the marketplace is a high priority and uh, connecting that back to the company's footprints in a very robust way. So we're doing this um, for power now for some of those carbon removals, but, you know, we already Mm -hmm. intimated in this conversation, I'd love to add some other things like 
energy efficiency consultations mm. or green materials like cement and steel or even sustainable aviation fuels mm. to the marketplace um, to give our customers even more you know, options on the menu. Um, so those are things we're actively pushing on and I'm excited to see where it goes. Excellent. And back to some more of your academic expertise, I'm curious what, you know, in the grand vast world of everything happening in climate or climate tech and carbon accounting, like what else are you particularly excited about or interested in or could even be the regulatory environment? Yeah, I mean, my academic interests are sort of turning a little bit away from the pure climate science and into more practical questions of mm -hmm. how do we actually deploy all of these different technologies that we think we need uh, to get to a stable climate. I already kind of mentioned this study recently that we were involved in that looked at the the uh, injustice that has historically been the, you know involved in air pollution mm. and how that might be remedied by the you know rise of a cleaner energy system. I think that's one example of kind of a class of academic work that I'm really interested to see unfold, which is to make sure that you know we don't have a lot of barriers as we go out and try to build all these solar and wind farms, for example, um, the siting of that, um, mm -hmm. the sort of, you know, incumbent technologies that need to be displaced before maybe they would like to be retired. Um, and then making sure that, you know, as we do that, we maintain support of those communities that are going to be on the front lines of the new technology or coming mm -hmm. off of an old technology. So, you know, being thoughtful about that and doing the spatial planning and analysis of the impacts um, in a careful and robust way, is, I think we're in the early days of that in the academic world. Mm. And so there's probably, you know, five to 10 years of good work that can be done just on those issues. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, even whether it's accessibility and kind of equity and how some of the stuff scales in the U.S., I mean, I think of EVs as a good example of you know, even for someone like myself, it'd be pretty difficult to get one and charge it living in an apartment. And if it isn't easy for me, then it's not going to be easy for a whole host of other people. But then even thinking about, you know, outside the U.S., if we successfully scale technologies here, you know, are they going to be scalable in developing countries? Uh, yeah. Or how could they be more scalable in developing countries? That's right. The international piece is also a big factor there. Um, you know, I, we could talk a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the support that's going to flow from that. And, and I think it's it's wonderful. Uh, I think it's going to be a real uh, turbo boost to the mm. uh, transition that we want. Um, but there's also a lot of questions in my mind about exactly how that money ends up landing and who benefits from it and making sure that that doesn't you know, uh, reinforce the historical inequities that are out there. So, mm. Uh, and that's where I think some academic work can be very helpful. Right. What's one example of an area where you're concerned that, you know, something that the IRA will incentivize might disproportionately benefit communities well, or mean, folks that are already advantaged? Yeah, you mentioned EVs. I think, you know, there's work already out there that shows that a lot of the subsidies that have flowed to EVs mm -hmm. have disproportionately benefited affluent uh, families. So that's an example, like, you know, making sure that it's not just a rich get richer kind of thing and that these benefits are distributed equitably, I think is kind of important. 
not just because it's fair, but also because it really is going to reinforce the sort of grassroots support that we need to sustain in order to, to make this transition work. Yeah, I think that's a it's such an interesting example because, I don't know, I think about like a supercharger for EVs on the highway in California and like it's important that we learn how to develop those technologies, but it's also expensive and probably has like a less than 5% utilization rate and the folks that are using it are the ones that have a $70,000 Tesla. So it's not easy to consider, you know, you want to get some reps in at building this stuff and getting it out in the wild, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. always benefit the folks that <laughs> could certainly use more investment in their communities. Yeah. And I think, of course, you know, things often start expensive and you have to buy your way down that learning curve. But thinking about who's paying to buy down that learning curve, sometimes, you know, making sure that it is the Tesla owners and not <laughs> not the, the uh, average taxpayer, maybe. So, uh, yeah, right. You know. And I guess one more question for you, um, in particular, because you've lived in both worlds, academic business. What are some ways in which you'd like to see those two kind of sectors, which can seem pretty remote from one another at times, working together more harmoniously on stuff like this? Because as you said, it's one thing to write a paper on it, and it's another for someone to go out and build a business or a nonprofit actually trying to implement some of the changes that are recommended. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually one of the things that's been most fun about joining Watershed is to think about how the high-level science gets translated down to a, a more practical decision. Um, and I think there's a real gap there. And, you know, one way that I'm hoping to help close that is by having a foot in both worlds. And now mm -hmm. that I've seen both sides, I think it would, you know, help me to be a better researcher uh, when I, uh, and if I go back and do more research. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate your leadership on that front. Um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of exciting. This is something that you may have noticed. There's a lot of academics now, not just me, that are you know, going into the private sector, spending time in startups, in businesses mm -hmm. to help make these decisions uh, go the right way. And I think that's a really great thing for both the, the businesses who will have kind of someone really holding their feet to the fire to make sure mm -hmm. there's real impact. But it's also wonderful for the academics who are getting a dose of practicality where we've been up in our ivory towers. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in some cases it's enough to scare them back into the, into the ivory tower. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I like that idea. Maybe there's something to be said for even just, it doesn't always have to be a formal role, but it could be like an academic in residence type of position at companies like that. Could be something that could be really beneficial if it's become more popular. Yeah, I don't think we've seen a lot of it with the the climate and energy fields, um, but that's something that does happen. I know in like biomedical space, mm. um, where there's often like industry sponsors research programs, and you know the the IP is always a little delicate to work out, but I think it could work in other domains too. Gotcha. Yeah, I have to pick my dad's brain about that. He's a biomedical engineer so oh, is it? Yeah. Maybe he's got some you know about some this. insight how that works but yeah i mean i definitely can see why definitely seems like something we should be doing in, in the climate sector yeah i mean i think something worth saying while we're on this topic is you know 370 billion is a terrific amount of money to see flowing over the next decade 
to make this transition a reality. But we also have to be really clear that that's like a drop in the bucket of what actually needs to be spent to right. get us to a, a stable climate. Um, and so the trillions of dollars that are actually going to go to invest in all of this technology, a lot of that's going to be from the private capital that has to come to the table. And so that the IRA is an example of a, a very important policy inducement to get the private actors that we need to the table to spend their money. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think folks sometimes gloss over that fact that it's, you know, really public spending is great and the dollar figures are great, but in an ideal world, it's really just like the catalyst to unlock three, four, 10x the amount of money in the private sector too. Hopefully that pans out. Yeah, I mean, I think we're already seeing it. I think that yeah. the biggest hope I have for solving the climate problem is that this is going to really build momentum and snowball and that, you know, as more and more companies start spending more dollars, the costs of the technologies and the barriers to their deployment are going to fall away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we'll see a, a faster transition than even we expect. Yeah. To that end, um, a lot of folks in the audience often kind of come to me saying, hey, you know, super fired up about all this stuff. I want to get involved. Where should I go work? And so I pose that question to you. Perhaps Watershed has some roles that they're hiring for in and of itself. But, you know, even beyond that, how would you encourage or where would you encourage folks to get involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I've actually been really excited to see how many opportunities there seem to be, despite kind of some poor macroeconomic environment at the mm -hmm. moment, both within Watershed, but in, in this space in general. Um, like I mentioned, I've seen several of my colleagues join various companies, and I think a lot of the students uh, from our program are finding uh, a home now in the private sector, not just looking for a job as a professor. So there's there's a lot for folks with training um, mm -hmm. in energy fields or climate fields right now, and including at Watershed. So uh, yeah. we've got three openings on my team of climate scientists and carbon experts right now nice. looking to fill. And um, I think that there's others throughout the organization um, looking for people, especially with some knowledge of climate science um, that, that they can bring to bear. Fantastic. I'll make sure to add them to my job board too, so folks can find them yeah, there. Please do. Quick timeout off the record. Anything that you feel like we've missed? I feel like we hit a lot of really good stuff. I think we've covered a, a good number of the questions that you had. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had a couple like of, you, you wanted to know about the carbon monitor. You had some about the current COP27, like one and a half degree thing. I don't know if you want to get to those. Or... If you want to, I'm happy to, but certainly not mandatory. I guess, you know, the 1.5 degree thing is a pretty different topic, but something that I think is definitely relevant. And I'm not sure if that's something that you've spent a lot of time researching yourself or as part of kind of the IPCC working groups, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to make a couple of remarks about it and then you can decide to cut it or not. If you sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I'll roll us back in. One kind of off the wall question is I've seen a lot of conversation in some of the circles in which I swim recently about, you know, the original 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target that I think came out of 2015 Paris Accords. Um, 
a lot of folks are saying, you know, we should, shouldn't like, this isn't really the right target to focus on anymore because we've already locked in or on a trajectory from more warming than that. And, you know, I think people also question the merits of these targets that are kind of like demoralizing when, you know, you might blow through them at some point. How do you hear that conversation? Uh, or what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting topic because it's, it moves away from sort of physical realities into the subjective domain of what is politically and economically feasible. Mm. Um, there's no reason that if we instantaneously stopped emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases today, we would stay under one and a half degrees. So, you know, in, in terms of the physical possibility, it's obviously still on the table. Mm-hmm. So most of the arguments that we hear about it not being possible are ones that are building in some assumption about the future trajectory of the energy system or food system emissions. Mm-hmm. Some of my academic work has actually been to look at what I call committed emissions, where mm-hmm. we look at all of the stuff in the world that emits CO2. And then we forecast if if it lasts and continues to operate as it has historically, sure. um, what kind of emissions and what sort of temperature increase would you get? And so we had a paper about this in 2019 um, where we showed that if all of the existing stuff operated over the historical lifetimes um, and continued going, then we would actually be over one and a half degrees. Right. So the implication being we had to retire some of the fossil infrastructure early in order to meet that target. Right. Um, you know, I think our work showed that that's definitely the case. What it didn't really get at, though, is like, wh- what's the feasibility of actually retiring it early? And a lot of that, in my mind, hangs on something mm-hmm. we've already talked about, which is how much momentum can we build towards transitioning to solar and wind? I mean, a lot of places right now, it's cheaper to build a brand new solar installation than it is to continue operating a coal-fired power plant. Mm -hmm. But there are legal agreements in place. There's sort of strictures on how much of the cost of retiring a plant early can you pass to rate payers in your utility Mm -hmm. area. These kinds of things are barriers to actually making what would be an economically rational choice. So this is where I come to Watershed thinking we got to solve some of these practical problems to get ourselves to move faster. And and I think it's possible. I'm optimistic, but, you know, I don't think it's time to just walk away from a goal just because it seems hard. Right. Yeah. And to add to some of the, you know, slightly optimistic takes, perhaps, I think I was looking at a study recently from McKinsey where they looked back at past projections for global solar capacity additions or something like that. And it was like universally since 2006 for the past 15 years, everyone's projections for 2022 came in low. And so I think it's, you know this better than I, but it's really hard to model out and predict kind of what adoption and expansion will look like, especially when it's happening exponentially. So we can be hopeful that we're still underestimating things like renewable energy capacity additions and that, you know, maybe we're past some tipping points that, accelerate the transition faster than we're expecting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we're we're not very good at predicting the future just on the whole. Um, and we're especially bad when we're trying to predict radical changes. Like we're, we're okay as long as things are kind of trending very gradually in one direction. We seem to do okay, but it's almost <laughs> happenstance. 
And when it comes to like predicting a, a, a bend in the curve, it's really a difficult thing. Uh, so I think there's still cause to be optimistic. And I think, you know, keeping some pressure on ourselves by having mm. that ambitious goal isn't a bad thing. Right on. All right, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Where should uh, folks follow your work if they're interested in keeping up with your studies and what you're doing at Watershed? Yeah, Watershed has a terrific website, uh, watershed.com, and uh, a lot of news blogs on there and announcements of our latest and greatest. So um, I should be visible there. And it's been a pleasure, Nick. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. All right, right, y'all. I'm going to pause the recording unless anything else you want to say.